1: This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Frankie Graziano. After losing the 2020 presidential election, Donald Trump made false claims about voter fraud, reigniting efforts from Republicans to restrict voting access across the country. States like Florida, Texas, and Georgia all have passed sweeping voting restrictions. But here in Connecticut, the opposite has been true. We've been seeing a push to expand voting access after residents voted overwhelmingly in favor of early voting last November. Now lawmakers in the state capitol are figuring out what that could look like in our state. Joining us now on where we live for a discussion on voting access in Connecticut are Jaden Edison, justice reporter at the Connecticut Mirror, Dr. Bilal Siku, Hilliard College Associate Professor of Politics and Government at the University of Hartford, and Jonathan Wharton, Associate Professor of Polit- Political Science and and urban affairs at Southern Connecticut State University. Welcome to the program, gentlemen. Good morning, and go Hawks. Go Hawks. And then there's Jonathan Wharton, the preppy prof, the associate professor of political science and urban affairs at Southern Connecticut State University. Good morning, Jonathan.
2: Good
0: morning, Frankie. And hey, go Owls. All right, we're gonna make this a bird competition.
1: Hawks and <laughs> Owls. Pretty soon, the Hawks are gonna be in D three, but we'll still uh, we'll still think uh, glowingly about the Hawks. <laughs> And, folks, just make sure that you're paying attention to this conversation. You want to pop in with us. Call us at 888-720-9677, 888-720-WNPR. And I just want to start by first asking a question to Jaden. We're one of four uh, four states without in-person early voting. We changed that in November. Remind us, how did that proposal end up on the ballot?
3: Right, so I mean, it was quite the process, right? This was the the second time that it, that it reached the ballot. Uh, previously in 2014, it, it essentially failed at the hands of voters. Um, you know, the proposal to get through early voting, and so essentially, it had to go back through the legislature. So. The way it works is that in order to you know change essentially you know the voting laws which are enshrined in the constitution, there has to be either a three-fourths majority support or a simple majority in two successive legislative terms um, for that to happen. And so, for, and, and then from there it goes to voters to decide you know through you know the version of a question in which we saw in November. And so you know voters overwhelmingly voted in support of that. And, and previously, I think in 2014, I think you know the, the failing of the of the ballot question was kind of attributed to honestly, confusion about the question, even as somebody who has two, I have two college degrees, I always confused myself, you know, about specifically what that thing was asking. So, you know, I think you can kind of get a sense of that, along with just kind of, you know, uh, concerns about giving perhaps the state legislature, you know, more power, but just general, I guess, uncertainty about what specifically the question was asking. But we got it through this time, more simple question.
1: I'll tell you probably why the question this year was, shall the constitution of the state be amended to permit the General Assembly to provide for early voting? Much simpler question than the <laughs> last time simple. around. And that 2014 resolution failed by uh, more than like 38,000 votes. More than votes. 38, right. Yeah, 30, I stole 30, that from your reporting. Right. Uh, I'm going to go now to Bilal Siku. I, I just want to... We, we we say in this open, and it's very true, that Connecticut is looking to expand voter access. Uh, it's it's on probably the the positive side of this, whereas some other states are... Are now going the other way but by reiterating the fact that only four states don't currently have early voting and we're one of them to me it hammers home the point that connecticut just isn't progressive when it comes to ballot access like it is in many other areas if early voting mows down systemic barriers that we know of like long lines and work why has connecticut been reticent to move forward with this Bilal?
2: Yeah, and and thanks for um, that, um, you know, those comments about the history of this uh, effort by Jaden. The only thing I would add very quickly about uh, Jaden's introduction to the issue is that this is also something. I've been the chair of the board for Common Cause close to a decade now, and this is an issue we've worked on, along with a lot of other organizations here in the state, um, League of Women Voters, Connecticut Citizen Action Group and other pro democracy groups. So I think the reason this has been able, we've been able to move this forward, is because of the work of all of those organizations in the trenches, you know, doing the lobbying work, getting out there, working, building um, momentum towards this point where we're at now, and hopefully we'll be able to get it over the finish line. I think the the thing about Connecticut has been a structural issue, and I think you're absolutely right, Frankie. Connecticut interestingly enough, happens to be a state in which it's really difficult in some ways to vote. And some of that is structural. We have a constitution that requires that voting occur on a certain day. As a result of that, to make changes, you need to change the constitution. And of course, that can be a very cumbersome process getting that done, especially if one of the political parties is not on board with making those changes. And the party in control that wants to make the changes don't have a supermajority that they can really hammer through these proposals. And so, um, Connecticut moves slow. It's the land of steady habits for a reason. And it seems like when it comes to election reform, we find ourselves engaged in battles trying to make these things happen. But fortunately, we do the right thing. We've had strong support from the Secretary of State office. In fact, several sec- secret- several past Secretary of State's going back at least in my memory to Miles Rappaport have been in support of trying to advance an election reform agenda here in the state. And that's been a good thing. And
1: Important to note first that uh, 59% of voters supported early voting. I just wanted to get that out there. Overwhelming support, it's almost 60%. So that's basically, what, 6 out of 10. But just on in, in what you said in there a second ago, Bilal, I want to get more into the fact of the Constitutional Amendment uh, in the next segment when we talk about uh, the future of, <clears throat> of voter access which many think can be the no-excuse uh, no excuse ballots, absentee ballots that could be sent to homes. But I, I want to get more into that and, and the future of that in a second. Bilal, just one more thing for you here. For someone who's told me that granting voters early access is in his
2: DNA, you told
1: me that one time, I'd imagine <laughs> you saw the November ballot referendum as a historic milestone for the state.
2: Oh, absolutely. And again, we, we had accomplished, we thought we had gotten you know, to a point where we get this over the the goal line, you know, a few years back, as you mentioned before. But, you know, some really awful language came out of the Secretary of State's office and others who put together that language that went on the ballot. Voters were very confused. But I will say this, in places where common cause and other groups actually spend some time talking to voters, especially you know at train stations and other places it actually passed in those areas and so if we perhaps even had more time to really educate the public about what this is like we were able to do this time around that i think it there was a real possibility this could have passed even with that awful language the last time
1: preppy prof you're quiet over there what are your thoughts on the question of early voting
2: oh i got a lot of thoughts on it go um, ahead You know,
0: and and I want to add a political dimension to what I'll add it here. And I think it's critical that listeners have an understanding of this. We are a quirky state for many reasons, and it's no secret. One of them is, and something that he hit on, I want to maybe further get into, is the fact when it comes to these political dimensions, you got to get the parties on board. And so any reforms, any changes you're doing, it is very, very challenging. I, I think you all know it's no secret that even I've advocated, for some reforms, even, for example, of doing away with the conventions or considering open primaries or some of these voting mechanisms and changes and reforms, you got to get both parties on board. And we just resist. It is a very difficult thing and challenge in Connecticut to do this. And it drives me up the freaking wall. But, you know, this is the state we're in. Sure. Blame it on the land of study habits. But I think a part of it is just that, you know, it's difficult to get the party leaders on board, and I don't want to ignore, and this is critical, the majority of voters are unaffiliated voters in Connecticut. We can't ignore that part, and yet the party leaders are the ones who really are, you know, can be the ones to kind of get in the way sometimes of these reforms.
3: I
1: want to think about this more of who's impacted by early voting, who it primarily benefits. I want to mention that, thanks to the great work of my producer, Meg Dalton, I have this for you, the National Bureau of Economic Research by using cell phone data. That data shows that people of color experience long wait times, longer wait times than white voters. Um, Some of the things that we're seeing nationally, uh, and we're going to get to this in the last segment, but um, with the potential to have maybe one ballot box, uh, this was coming up in Ohio, one absentee ballot box per county, I would imagine that that's by design a lot of the times. What are your thoughts on that, Jaden?
3: Well, I I think first and foremost, to understand, you know, what's happening now, you have to understand, you know, Connecticut's kind of history when when it comes to, you know, the disenfranchising of, of, of people of color, as you kind of alluded to. Right. I mean. We're talking about a state, essentially, that was the first in the nation to to require, you know, literacy tests. Right. This is a state that effectively, you know, to, to essentially outlaw the literacy test that came down from an amended version of the Voting Rights Act in 1970. So it was the federal government literally laying the hand down and saying this is it. You know, same thing when you talk about access for, for, for black men at the ballot box, particularly when it comes to, you know, Connecticut, you know, access for, for black men at the ballot box didn't come until the ratification of the 15th Amendment. Um, in 1870, right. So, we're talking about a state that has a a, a, a history of a voter suppression, which kind of informs the things that we're seeing today. I mean, you could even go back on the note of literacy tests, right, and and the methods that w- that have been used to kind of suppress, you know, the vote of people of color. There is a documented history in the in the you know 1950s of you know those literacy tests effectively keeping Puerto Ricans from from access. So, I think all those things are relevant to the conversation now when we're talking about you know, the how, perhaps how slow the state might be. I mean, there, this isn't new at all. This, this is the track record of things that, you know, that have happened, you know, throughout the uh, Connecticut's history and throughout the history of this country that kind of inform where we are today. But I think you you hit the nail right on the head. I mean, we talk about, you know, longer wait times. I mean, also, uh, you know, w- who you can't exclude, right? You have people with disabilities, right? You have people, you know, who are taking, you know, their, you know, elderly, you know, mother um, or, or father, grandfather, whomever it may be to the polls, right? That may take a little bit more time. And so we're talking about a, a measure that effectively helped more than 20 million people in the last election across the country in Connecticut, just uh, essentially, you know, being slow to the game, f- uh, for lack of a better term. So I-, I just think all those things are relevant when we're talking about, you know, who is disproportionately affected when it comes to access to the ballot box.
1: And I want to go to Bilal and Jonathan for a reaction because I want to know if, if at the end of the day, we're going to help people out and and kind of stem inequity. But before we get there, now I got to put you on the hot seat, Jaden. Now I got to have you give me kind of the lay of the land on what these proposals are going to look like. Lawmakers at the state capitol trying to figure out the framework uh, for what early voting could look like currently three bills that would establish early voting, right? Uh, Can you walk us through them?
3: Right. So, I mean, the bills are relatively similar. I think there are little tweaks uh, that are kind of in the weeds, but just for the purposes of of our listeners here, I guess we can, the the way I've kind of, you know, differentiate them, right? You have three uh, bills, one that will implement 10 days of early voting, one that will implement 14 days of early voting, and one that will implement 18 days of early voting. And each kind of has some component of uh, same-day registration during the early voting period, which we we already have, right, when it comes to election day, but it would also extend that um, during the early voting period. And it also would require the Secretary of State's office to take on efforts to essentially educate the public and to also, uh, you know, kind of educate election workers on how to administer this thing in, in the most effective way possible. So, yeah, those three bills are on the table, but specifically the Secretary of State's office, Sec- uh, uh, Stephanie Thomas, Secretary of State's office, has really championed the bill that would that would implement 10 days of early voting right citing kind of studies in the past that have kind of, you know, you know, looked at the efficacy of of certain times and whatnot. so those are kind of the 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 three I think the the three uh, the, the way I kind of take it differentiate them is through the days in particular uh,
1: are we politicizing the days? I want to say this because it, to me uh, right away I my my ears kind of prick up when I hear that the Secretary of State is is interested. We have 10, 14, and eighteen, and the Secretary of State is interested in ten. Bilal or Jonathan, whoever wants to jump in here. When you hear that the Secretary of State is picking the least amount of days, does that show you that the issue's been politicized? What do you think?
0: No, I think a part of it is, and I've been obsessed about the day count. I don't know why, <laughs> but I am. It's very weird for me to even be stuck on this number and what works and what doesn't. I think the biggest problem that's got to be tackled, and you all know this better than even I do, is that the you know the rest voters in so many of these towns... Need to find pathways of staffing. That's a big issue, right? We already know the limitations as it relates on election day and primary day, because, and quite frankly, especially as a former party leader, it drove me crazy to figure out the staffing situation of getting the party um, leaders and volunteers to step up and be engaged on this election day. Well, imagine stretching this out over so many days now, you know. And you assume, oh, it's going to be easy to pay them. They don't pay them that much, if anything at all, to be at the polls. And it matters even worse is is the fact that, you know, it tends to be people who are retired, who are semi retired, as opposed to oftentimes younger people. No surprise. Um, So there's a big gap there um, when we're talking about generational engagement. And I wonder if for the secretary of state purposes and even party leaders, are they going to find a pathway of recruiting people to do more of this? I think that's one of the basic challenges that so many of these towns, we have 169 of them that they need to sort out
2: Well. Yeah, so Frankie, uh, you know, my my position and also the position we've taken at, at Common Cause is that we need to see at least a minimum of 14 days. And so 10 days in our minds is not enough. And I think there, you know, Jonathan has certainly raised, I think another important issue is, and I think the Secretary of State's office and lawmakers are aware of this, is the need to resource this, you know, if we if we end up with whatever we end up with, we we still have to provide support for local communities, you know, that need to do all of the things that Jonathan is describing. I think there are some other, uh, you know, things we think need to be out there, need to be a part of this. And so, for example, having some weeknights in which people who, for example, work and aren't able to get to the polls. Jonathan and I, as faculty members, we have the luxury of sometimes not having a class at nine or ten in the morning, so we can pop in a polling place and we can vote. There are other folks who have to get up in the morning, hop on a bus at you know six o'clock in the morning, in order to you know make a trip out to the suburbs to work in a, a warehouse, perhaps. Um, you know, so giving them the opportunity to vote in the evening, and also commuters who go into New York City to work as an example. We think also there needs to be some weekends in which voters have an opportunity to vote. Um, One of the things that happens in a lot of states that have early voting, you have something called souls to the polls in which black churches, for example, will uh, provide transportation for people after services and carry them to an early voting uh, location and give people an opportunity to vote. And so weekend voting, I think is also going to be key and I think also another thing that will be key is that, you know, this idea of perhaps only one polling place in some of our larger cities like Hartford and Bridgeport and New Haven just doesn't make sense. Um, these are large cities, and so having mo- perhaps multiple polling places, in some states, they actually have mobile uh, you know polls, so they move it around to different parts of the city. I think especially in a city like Hartford, where perhaps a third of the population lacks Um, You know, automobiles and, you know, and again, just, you know, this idea of needing to ride from the north end all the way downtown to vote just doesn't make sense to me if we can create an opportunity for people to participate in in the process right there on the north end of Hartford or on the south end of Hartford. Um, I think that will also be you know key. And so for me and also those of us at, at common cause and some and, and many of our allies who work on those on this issue, these are some of the things we think are really important that need to be done. But real quick
1: but real quick Bilal, the idea that you have 14 days of early voting at least 14 days is the idea there that you guarantee that you get two weekends of, of voting.
2: That and my that is that is the hope for okay. me. You know that we create again those opportunities. I think you know we you know we're pretty insane. You know this idea that we have a day in which everyone is supposed to show up to vote. It's not a holiday, which is just crazy. It's in you know it's in a, during a weekday when people have to go to vote. So we want to maximize the opportunity for people to turn out to vote and to support you know, the creation and movement, this movement we're trying to make towards an inclusive democracy, and we need to make access to the polls as easy as possible. I vote in the suburbs, normally takes me about 15, 20 minutes maybe at the most. And that's, you know, if it's a few people ahead of me, people in the city, in the city of Hartford, Bridgeport and other large cities may spend hours in line trying to vote and that's just wrong.
1: I got a break soon, so I'm going to ask this one question to Jaden before we uh, take off to the next segment. You've been covering the public hearings about early voting, and you're hearing from state residents talking to lawmakers. What are they saying?
3: Overwhelmingly in favor of, of, you know, setting a framework that is accessible, right? I mean, we in the last public hearing, we heard, you know, uh, support of the 14 day, um, you know, implementation, also, you know, the 18 day implementation. So I think there is a overwhelming understanding that there's a need to get this done. And there's a desire to get this done among the public from from college students to people who've been in this state for decades upon decades on um, wide ranging support um, and, and trying to figure out a way to get this done in a way that's accessible to everyone.
1: From Connecticut Public Radio, this is where we live. I'm Frankie Graziano. I got Jaden in studio. I got Bilal on uh, Zoom as well as Jonathan Wharton. Stick with us. More on voting in Connecticut after the break.
2: I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving.
1: For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Frankie Graziano, and we're taking your phone calls this hour if you want to give us a call. 1-800, excuse me, 1-888-720-9677. One more time. I think you can use that number one more time. 888-720-9677. We've been talking about efforts to expand voting access in Connecticut, including the push for early voting. Still with me, I got in studio Jaden Edison, who is wearing a wonderful shirt uh, in honor of Ida B. Wells, not because it's Women's History Month, not necessarily, but because he's going to honor... Ida B. Wells every day.
3: I love Ida. I love Ida. Amazing.
1: On Zoom right now, Dr. Bilal Siku uh, from the University of Hartford and Jonathan Wharton from Southern Connecticut State University.
2: Good, good morning again. And Ida B. Wells is one of my favorites also. Same here. Yeah,
1: Ida B. Wells, obviously uh, responsible, uh, one of the people responsible for the start of the NAACP. Absolutely. Uh, Jonathan, we're going right to you here. Uh, Opposition to early voting. Is that largely come from the GOP or is this kind of getting bipartisan support? What do you think?
0: I think it's at least among Republicans, um, at least a sense from what I'm gathering. You know, the assumption has been out there is that all Republicans are against it. I don't think that's the case. Uh, Maybe some officials here and there. The concern kind of stems from the origins of, as you know, you all know about, uh, uh, you know, ballot harvesting Um, and certainly the some of the situations where you see, um, you know, ballots being completed or formed or done in advance. And, um, you know, that's not unusual, especially in some strongholds, but the numbers don't always weigh out uh, as much. And, um, you know, there have got to be at least measures in place, which there are, uh, there's no doubt to prevent that kind of thing from happening. Um, but I got to be frank with you all, Connecticut compared to other states in the area, I think we tend to do a better job. I mean, God knows I lived in New Jersey for years. They are very good about doing ballot harvesting and corruption that came through in Hudson and Nessus County. And it's just a very quirky process in terms of what they do. And even going back to your original point in the first segment, they also, well, I think you already know this in Hudson County, you have the election day off um, as a county and as a local employee. And I actually worked for Hudson County Community College and I got the election day off and everybody showed up you know it was just it it was your duty you had to do it and in your minds you're thinking oh officials would be the one to moderate no your unions would make sure you showed up
1: (laughs) The, the the big conversation though here has been in terms of why people don't want this to happen is because uh we we had mentioned this on earlier shows but dominic rapini is somebody who ran against stephanie thomas and he's talking about money he's saying that it costs too much what's Jade and Jonathan what's what's the alternative here we have 10 14 and 18 and you're starting to get the sense that maybe they go with 10 but we we're hearing an alternative people want the, the the opposition maybe less days of early voting
3: Right. So, particularly on the funding component, I think it's important to understand. I think one of the things that Secretary of State uh, Stephanie Thomas highlighted um, during that public hearing on early voting was the need for two things, right? The need to get this thing passed early so that there's, you know, time to work out the kinks of it, and also a need for funding of it, right? And so, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, part of that opposition, even among some um, Republican registrars in the state, has been that, you know, prior to this getting, you know, passed among voters was that, you know, this was an, an unfunded, you know, mandate. But I, I think that the, the irony in that is that, you know, perhaps some of the people, you know, within, you know, uh, specifically Republican legislators who perhaps have, you know, referenced it as an unfunded mandate. These are the very people, the very body that's in control of of figuring out, you know, what funding needs to go toward that. And I also want to be clear, too, is that when we're talking about early voting, like this isn't some foreign concept that is is new and there's no model elsewhere on how to figure this out. I mean, again, we're talking about 46 other states that have figured out a way to make early voting uh, early voting work, right? It's other states that have figured out, you know, funding, you know, uh, funding strategies and figuring out how to to best implement this. I mean I come from, you know, Texas where, you know, when I was in college, I had two weeks, you know, to early vote on my college campus, right? So I think it's important to remember that, you know, the, the funding is an important piece and I should also know that there wasn't, you know, funding, you know, allocated to this in the in the governor's initial budget proposal. So that's a, a big thing to note is that, you know, th- there's a lot of legwork to be done in order to to try to figure out out how we can best fund this. And I think the best way, seemingly, you know, you know, from from talking to experts on the situation is to have a smooth operation with this, you need to have that funding component. It's essential.
1: Before I open this up to Jonathan and Bilal, this is a very key thing. This isn't, as far as we know, in the governor's biennium budget. Right. I reached out to OPM and I asked them if it was and they said that the Secretary of the States office hasn't asked them for the money yet on early voting. Secretary of the States office says that's because they don't ask for money outside of their own agency. They say they won't they can use the bully pulpit essentially to go to the public and ask for more money from lawmakers for individual municipalities. But this is where we kind of where the rubber might meet the road, right? Because If we don't have money for municipalities to do this, how do you carry it out, right? This is what Jaden's saying, that you need money in order to support these elections. It sounds like what may happen with this, I've heard that the Secretary of the State's office is working with the Office of Fiscal Analysis. They'll find out what the legislation is, attach a fiscal note to it, and then it may come across as an unfunded mandate, right? It goes through, but you have to find money for it in the budget. That unfunded mandate word, that phrase is what I want to go now to Jonathan Bilal uh, with. When we hear unfunded mandate, is that essentially a dog whistle to kind of like uh, the majority here that it's like or or whoever saying it they perceive as the majority to say that we don't want this, we don't want early voting or we don't it's going to cost too much. Is that what you hear when you hear unfunded mandate?
2: <laughs> well, you know, obviously it's a a word that is used by people who oppose a particular um, you know, policy and so I think we you know, we're moving through the stages that I think ultimately we will get to a place where we will have a funded program. Connecticut has the money. So this is not a this is not one of those situations where we you know, can say you know, we there's no way we can fund this. No, we can fund it. The funding is here in the state. And the people of Connecticut have spoken. 60 percent of the public who voted uh, spoke in favor of this program. They spoke in favor because they understand what the benefits are. They understand that this will produce shorter lines on election day. Um, They understand that this will improve even poll worker performance on election day because there may be fewer people who are trying to vote on that day. They understand that this is a way to perhaps early identify and correct registration errors and other sort of glitches that may occur on election day that slows down the process they understand that this will you know produce greater access to voting and increase voter satisfaction and so the voters of connecticut have spoken the lawmakers and the governor and the secretary of state just need to you know get their act together and make this thing happen and it and i believe it will happen and it has to happen because the people in connecticut have spoken that this is something that they want to see
1: but Jonathan, when you yeah. talk earlier about having funding for municipalities, right, to yes. to have maybe a pathway for recruitment or something like this, mm-hmm. when when this is always broken down to me and I'm given the explanation from somebody that works in a secretary of the state's office, they say that look, we're here to support elections, but we don't run the elections; the municipalities do. So, uh, are you concerned when we when we're talking about the way that this may be funded? Or that the way that this may go down, that there might not be money from municipalities to kind of uh, find staffing, because staffing is going to be key in, in, in all of this.
0: Oh, absolutely. And and beyond that, you're mentioning the financial dynamics. I think the interesting thing is, even if it gets played out with the mandate, even if there's going to be some kind of fiscal note, as you're mentioning, attached to the budget, is the upcoming election going to be uh, a reality in terms of maybe more funding needs to take place or not? Or... Um, what does it mean down the road when you're just going to begin the election process with these changes? Um, because it's not going to be a typical election, knowing that the funding is not there, knowing the recruitment you know dynamics will not be there. It's going to take a while to really perfect this process, in other words. right? And that's not unusual, let's be fair, with legislative proposals. I really also want to stress that you know um, we're not Texas, right? We don't have the county governments. Um, and so this is back to our municipalities. I mean, we have a very strong uh, municipal level of governments, and they all differ so talk about a fascinating case study uh connecticut being this grand anomaly um to how we know uh you know home rule or dylan's rule when it comes to a local process like this one
1: Jaden, some gop lawmakers like senator rob sampson he's out of wolcott question whether there's a need for both early voting and something called no excuse absentee voting remind us of what that is and why it's different from early voting.
3: Yeah, so so I think the you hit the nail on the head. Is they're, they're different, right? And so when we're talking about no-excuse absentee ballot, I mean, there are similarities, and the similarity would be that there is an in-person component to no-excuse absentee. So essentially what that means, the no-excuse absentee ballot part of it is you're able to vote in person through a drop box prior to, uh, you know, election day, or um, you're able to vote by mail, right? Well, when we're talking about in-person early voting, we're typically just talking about voting in person, Prior to election day, right? I mean, it's it's in the name essentially, so they are different. Um, which you know, I, it was it was a bit peculiar, you know, to hear the the kind of you know, why do we need this um, if we have this? But. To, just for the for clarity, right for the record, these are two different.
1: But uh, in the but in the COVID era, we saw the landmark of, of, of elections that we had in in, in twenty twenty, and and it seemed like it worked out smoothly because you had an excuse not to go to the polls. Everybody had this excuse, this 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 ability to no excuse absentee ballot, right? To be able to send your vote in, and that was something that we saw because people were worried about getting sick at the at the ballot place. We couldn't have people gathering. So it seemed to work when we had it just for, for
3: during the COVID era. No, exactly. And you had it. So just to, to clarify, yeah, the, at the height of the pandemic. Um, so Connecticut, since the height of the pandemic, I should say, Connecticut has had essentially no excuse absentee you know, ballot voting. But the difference is, is that it's not codified into law, right? Which is what perhaps, you know, people in the voting advocacy space are pushing for. And also something that we could see um, on the ballot um, as soon as, as 2024, right? So, you know, they are different, um, and there are a bevy of states that that have both forms of of, of of voting, whether it be no excuse absentee and in person early voting. So again, I think you know it's an argument of, of perhaps semantics and specificities. But I think, as many have noted on the show already, I mean, voters have. Overwhelmingly shown that they want to get this done and and that they want to expand ballot access to to make it in a way that it's accessible for everyone. And so I think those things, you know, working in unison, you know, uh, it has shown in other places that that it can be done in a way um, that, you know, that works for all.
1: But law, some people just aren't going to get to the polls. And that's why I feel like you have to have uh, no excuse absentee voting, or at least that's why we, we the advocates clamor for no excuse absentee voting. We talk about people with disabilities people that uh obviously obviously some folks will have the excuse but some people just are, are gonna appreciate the ability to vote on their own terms and put it in the ballot box whenever they can
2: frank you know this may come as a surprise to you frankie but you know expanding access to voting is just in my dna you know? <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and i think you know this experiment we we had to do because of COVID with Uh, you know, removing the barriers to no excuse absentee voting wasn't just kind of successful. It was a stunning success. Tons of Connecticut voters given that opportunity to do that took advantage of that. We look nationally in states where no excuse absentee voting occurs. um, Voters turn out and use that particular process in extremely large numbers and so this is something that not just Connecticut voters this is something that the American people want and once again Connecticut is lagging behind rather than leading on this and so what we need to do is to make sure this happens and as I said before there are a lot of advocates that are out there you know common cause under the leadership of Sherry Quickmire. Has been working on this issue for years and this is something that we will continue to do people like tom swan at the connecticut citizen action group another pro-democracy advocate here in the state working on this issue for years and i think we're going to make we're going to get this to make we're going to make this happen but, and i think there are a lot of people in connecticut who want to see it happen as well i'm
1: trying to move forward the conversation because i slowed us yeah. down a little bit uh going back and forth but Jaden. We talked earlier about how these are constitutional amendments, and when you have voting enshrined in our local constitution, you now have to go back, and there are rules in place, and generally that takes a lot of time. So what this means, basically, is that we're a long way away from codifying uh, no-excuse absentee balloting, right?
3: Well, actually... So what happened was is that it's already passed through. So I I mentioned before that in order to, to, you know, for a constitutional amendment to essentially go through, you have to have that three-fourths majority support in both the House and the Senate, or you have the simple majority in two successive legislative terms. So we've already checked the box off on actually one of those, which would have been, um, you know, the last time around. And so if approved this time around, um the no excuse absentee question could could be on the ballot as soon as 2024 so it, it's it's something that you know we could be expecting relatively soon in terms I get, of I taking get, it to voters I should say
1: and then and then aside from early voting there's and and no excuse absentee validating there's also been a push from community organizers and elected officials to expand voting access in other ways talk to me about the proposed state level voters rights act an ability here to codify the John R Lewis voting rights the national voting mm-hmm. rights into the John R. Lewis Voting Rights Act of Connecticut
3: yeah so I mean we're talking about the National the Federal Voting Rights Act nationally I mean I think it's important to understand that you know by by according to many historians right, you know it, it's been understood that the United States didn't even have a, a, an actual democracy until the 1965 Voting Rights Act so that just kind of speaks to the the the, the importance of, of something like this and so what happened is is that you know over the last couple of years there's been a push for a state level, Voting Rights Act would essentially, you know, there are three kind of bullet points that I kind of categorize it into, right? You have uh, one component which would expand language assistance um, for people who don't, you know, speak English as a first language. Um, it would require localities with a record of discrimination to gain approval on changes to any election policy. Um, it would also allow people to essentially take civil action against acts of voter suppression. So it kind of mirrors specifically what we saw at the federal level, um, and this has also been an effort, again, as, as I mentioned, that's been. Kind of, you know, pushed around the legislature in the, in the in the last, you know, you know, few years and whatnot, and so it's it's back um, at the table this year. Though I should note, um, and I haven't seen it, not to say it doesn't exist, perhaps, but. The actual language this time around, um, I haven't seen any particular bills that are as exhaustive as what we've seen in prior years. Like it's kind of some shell bills kind of going around. that just has very kind of one to two sentence languages about this. But essentially um, it, it mirrors, you know, what we've seen across the country. I know New York mo- more recently has passed um, its own kind of Voting Rights Act. And so we're kind of seeing that the, the, the same kind of intent and the same kind of I, I think you can expect, I guess, similarities between the two and what we've seen in other places.
1: Running up against the break here, but I've had such a great time talking to Jaden Edison, Jonathan Wharton, and Bilal CQ. Thank you guys so much for talking to me. Just quickly, I want to keep Bilal on for a second, just a quick pivot before we go. Karen Hobart Flynn, a leader of Common Cause, recently died. What was her legacy in the state of Connecticut, Bilal?
2: Just a tremendous legacy, and thank you for giving me an opportunity to talk a little bit about Karen. Karen was the ninth president and the second woman who led Common Cause, uh, the national uh, organization. But she also was a former chair, uh, a former executive director of Common Cause in Connecticut. And of course, she was one of the people who really worked to secure the the landmark uh, public financing uh, system here in Connecticut, the public financing of elections that most lawmakers in the state use also running in the legislature, but also in, you know, for statewide offices as well. Um, Karen, you know, was just a tremendous, human, you know, democracy lost one of its fiercest defenders when she unexpectedly passed away. Um, You know, Karen, you know, just in her leadership with Common Cause nationally, she doubled its membership, expanded its presence. She, uh, you know, uh, Common Cause is now in more than 30 states across the country in terms of having chapters. And so just a tremendous leader, someone who will be missed. Um, When she passed away, the tributes from around the country were just overwhelming to me to see so many people on Twitter, so many organizations I never heard of who knew about her, knew about her work. And we have definitely lost a true champion for democracy.
1: Our thoughts are with Karen's family and with people that care about voter access like Bilal Siku. This is Where We Live. I'm Frankie Graziano. For Connecticut Public Radio, I'm Frankie Graziano. As we close up this hour of where we live, we're going to speak to Ruth Greenwood, who is the director of the Election Law Clinic at Harvard Law School. We've been talking about Connecticut this hour, Ruth, but please help us zoom out here. We just heard all about what's happening in Connecticut. How does that compare to elsewhere in the country?
4: Hello, Frankie. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Um, Yeah, what Connecticut is doing uh, is really excellent. It's just lovely to hear a group of activists Mm -hmm. talk about, you know, should we expand to 10 or 14 or 18 days of early voting? Um, That is such sort of positive news for the people of Connecticut. Um, Unfortunately, around the country, the debates sort of go the other way in many places. Um, There are lots of moves to try to suppress uh voting um so in particular um there are uh, these laws target um, black and brown people um, and there are lots of ways to do it right so you talked about early voting and vote by mail um, consolidating polling places you sort of run down the list, you know, the, the most egregious sort of example came out of Georgia where they said that, you know, you couldn't give water to people waiting in line to vote. You know, that's a way to get people out of line and, and have them not turn out. So, yeah, unfortunately, uh, we see we do see some good expansions in places like Connecticut and other um, and other hopeful states, but um, but also a good amount of suppression.
1: What what are we seeing in terms of the suppression, the efforts to to really restrict access?
4: Uh, yeah, so um, the there are efforts to restrict th- things like that have been expanded. So, for example, trying to make there be less early voting. Um, Bilal talked about souls to the polls. You know, in the last 10 years, um, there have been efforts in particular in North Carolina and Florida to try to get rid of Sunday um, voting because they know that that's a day when Black voters um, often do souls to the polls. Um, and, and things like that have thankfully been struck down, um, by the courts, um, as intentionally discriminatory, uh, but in many cases there actually isn't recourse to the courts. And, and so anyway, so, you know, getting rid of, um, voting, um, the weekend before the election, um, uh, also, you know, just changing, um, before you even get to, you know, election day, um, you need to register to vote. So making it harder to register to vote, um, for example, in Arizona, you're required to your citizenship. Um, so, if you're someone like me who naturalized, you know it costs hundreds of dollars to get a copy of your naturalization certificate. Um, uh, I don't know; the, the
1: list just goes on. And on. <laughs> but what are but what do these federal lawmakers and and obviously some of these, I guess, people at the state level that are really impacting how states react to voting? What do they say about this? I want to bring up something I heard. Uh, in the New York Times, I actually read it in the New York Times, this lawmaker from Ohio, there's this proposal where they want to just have one absentee ballot per per county box, one box per county, and that includes having one box in the county of Columbus, which is 1.3, the county where Columbus, the capital, is in, which is 1.3 million people. This lawmaker says that some, some lawmakers, some opposition on the other side, just want to make it so that you can get early voting or any kind of voter access along with quote breakfast in bed so what kind of things do we hear uh these lawmakers that are against uh voting early voting voter access what do they say
4: yeah i mean i don't know why they focus on this you know, election day is so important. So much of our lives happen all over the place now, and particularly through the pandemic. People don't just, you know, work in a workplace. People work from home and all over the place. Um, you know, as a mother of young kids, I know that planning to do something on a day at a certain time can be run run amok by so many different things. Um, and so, you know, on on the side, there's the, hey, we've always done it this way. You know, there's a real um, sort of inertia to the status quo. Um, but but I think the reality is that, you um, oh I'm sorry the other thing of course that's that said on the other side is is not just you know we shouldn't make it easy but that somehow there's going to be lots of fraud committed um you know that places like the Brennan Center for Justice have done studies into this um even actually the Republican National Lawyers Association did a study into the um uh how much voter fraud there's been and it essentially is sort of vanishingly unlikely that that voter fraud um occurs um and and so you know, really the opposition, I think, is coming from the lens of of not wanting historically disenfranchised groups of people to vote. And I, I think that, you know, there's sort of a discrimination element of that, right? It's racist. Um, but there's also a partisan element to that. You know, Republicans are able to identify that many people of colour will vote for Democrats, and they don't want more people voting for Democrats. And so they try to make it harder for their opponents to vote. Um, and that ends up disproportionately targeting people of
1: colour. Ruth, can you just really quickly break down how much fraud there was in the twenty twenty election, if any?
4: I don't think actually there were any cases. Not that I mean, I not that I'm aware of. The I, the one thing actually that um, was mentioned earlier, the the term. Sort of ballot harvesting is is a little unfair but actually there was a case in north carolina where a republican candidate for congress um went around taking people's um early voting slips and then voting for himself on them and and returning them but he was um prosecuted for doing that um and and you know not seated um so that's one type of fraud i guess um but aside from that, no, I mean, it's it. I, there's a great statistic, right? You're more likely to be hit by lightning than to hit
1: in person. <laughs> and, and this is the point why I asked that for clarification, because there were so many lawsuits that arose. There was uh, many attempts here locally in Connecticut as well out of the 2020 election. But there's just not that widespread fraud that people talk about. And it's very limited. You're telling me, somebody that's a national expert on voting, uh, that there was one case that you can think of. So are we seeing a lot of laws at the state level because there's been inaction at the federal level?
4: I think that's right. Um, You know, at the federal level, the I mean, maybe the last time we had was the Help America Vote Act um after in 2002 right after the bush v Gore sort of fiasco um aside from that unfortunately the federal government hasn't really been able to get together congress is <laughs> stuck um and and hasn't been able uh to to pass laws to Either expand or, or, thankfully, to restrict um, voting, and so it means that it really is on the states, um, and also states manage their own elections. Uh, and so, it you know, it, it it would be great to have better federal protections. I really wish that the Freedom to Vote Act got through, um, but without it, it's still possible, as you know, right, for places like Connecticut to make it. Um, Make voting more available to everybody. Unfortunately, it means places like, you know, Texas and Florida can can restrict voting um, and it's it's hard to go through courts to stop that.
1: When you're talking about the the division here, does that make it that we're unlikely to see efforts to expand access nationally?
4: yeah i'm a i'm an optimist and so i always don't like to say there's no opportunity but it was a real shame that the the freedom to vote act which all of these organizers that you've spoken with and all these national groups and local groups got together to to write um you know it you made it through the house and it just needed you know another uh, another two votes it needed a cinema and a mansion in the senate and it didn't get there um but the good thing with that is i mean the blueprint is written i think the next time that there are people that want to expand um it's not even really, I mean, some of it is expanding access, but more of the act was essentially providing protections, right? Lifting the floor. So there are there are things that you can't do um, to sort of disenfranchise uh, voters. You know, that that's written and there and ready to go whenever um, the appetite is there for it. Um, I will say that one other thing with respect to voting that actually did get bipartisan uh, support nationally was to amend the Electoral Count Act. Um, you know, there've been some shenanigans around electoral um the electoral college and and how that will go together and so making that amendment i think does hopefully secure the fact that in 2024 Just when people vote they who they vote for you know will translate into um who we end up with as president
1: and as we finish up here with about a minute left would you say that the biggest existential uh, threat to voter access right now is the u.s supreme court
4: I mean, it's not good. It's really not good. Uh, <laughs> I guess I would say it's the combination, right? When you have states like Texas doing terrible things and then there's no recourse because, you know, when you get to the Supreme Court, they're not going to help you. Um, it's not good.
1: And, and we're talking about uh, some of the some of the things that are happening in the Supreme Court right now around uh, Section 2 of the National Voting Rights Act of 1965.
4: Right. I mean, the Voting Rights Act, uh, you know, they they call it the crown jewel in the civil rights movement. It has been used in literally thousands and thousands of successful cases to enfranchise people of colour at the local government level, at state legislatures and in Congress. Mm -hmm. Um, And the case, Merrill v Milligan out of Alabama, um, you know, threatens to dismantle that. Hopefully the Supreme Court won't go as far as to completely dismantle it. But anything that that restricts Mm -hmm. it um, is... It's just going to, as I say, lose the floor, right? We had this floor of protection at the federal government level through the Voting Rights Act. And the more that that gets chipped away at, sort of the worse the states can be.
1: Thank you so much, Ruth. I appreciate you coming on today. Ruth Greenwood giving us a great understanding of national elections. Today's show produced by Meg Dalton. Thank you so much for Cat Pastor for helping us as well. You're listening to Where We Live.